And this morning we continue our series through Hebrews chapter 11, which we've entitled The Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is a series of individuals that God has given us as illustrations to allow us to uh, capture that same faith that these individuals had in him. And he prefaced this by saying that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so as we look at each, and each of these illustrations, these individuals, we kind of saw them as individuals who have been inducted into a hall of faith, like one would be inducted into the hall of fame. Some of them are more pronounced than others. Some of them are more well-known than others. And some of them have very little given about them for us to consider. And today is one of those uh, examples. As we come to the 20th verse, we've made our way that far through the chapter, we discover that we are now looking at the life of Isaac. And by faith, he says, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, period. And then they go on to the next inductee. And so we are left with a, just a snapshot of the entirety of Isaac's life. As you may remember, Isaac was the son of Abraham. He was the son of promise to Abraham. He is the one in which God had stated earlier on in Abraham's life that he would bless him and his wife Sarah with, and through Isaac, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. It would be through this lineage that Christ would come and bless all the nations of the earth. But as you may know, Abraham became uh, a little impatient. His wife Sarah made a suggestion that he took advantage of, and that was to try to move the hand of God quicker by having a child through the handmaiden of Sarah named Hagar, And this child was born, and this child's name was Ishmael. And they believed that they were helping God along, and that this would be the child in which God would bring about the blessings in which he had promised. But when they were approached by God, they were shocked to discover that God said, no, I'm not going to recognize Ishmael. Uh, I'm not going to use him, and he will not be the descendant in whom I shall give to you. As God made Abraham a promise that his descendants, the number of people that would come after him in his own lineage, his own line, would be more numerous than the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. But Abraham now had come to a point in his life, along with his wife Sarah, that they were now incapable of bearing children any longer. And so Abraham thought, well, God, you know, just use my son Ishmael. He's here and available and ready to go. And God said, no, no, no. The child I'm going to bring about is going to be a child of miraculous nature. I'm going to show you how I am capable of doing anything in which I have promised to you. 
I'm going to do something extraordinary. And your stage of life, even though Sarah is well beyond the years of, uh, of bearing children, and though you are well beyond the years of conceiving children, uh, I should say, or, or helping conceive children, Abraham, I am going to do something incredible. And he did. A year later, a child was born onto them, and that child was Isaac, and his name means laughter. Because when Sarah had heard that a child was still coming in her older age, she laughed at the promise of God, which God called her out on, which I think is somewhat uh, humorous and also embarrassing. But as a result, when the child was born, they gave that child the same name. So each and every time she would cradle that child, nurse that child, tend to that child, she would always remember what God did through her and her husband, Abraham. In fact, she says that when people see this child of mine, they're going to laugh, singing, well, how is it possible that Sarah, at the age that she was, was able to not only carry a child for nine months, but then deliver a child and, and so forth? This is incredible, and it seems almost laughable, but it's actually happened. So now the writer of the book of Hebrews, who is writing to Jewish individuals who had just become Christians, is writing to encourage these Christians in a time of great difficulty in their Christian faith. After becoming Christians, they were at first embraced by the Jewish community and the Jewish society and culture around them. Acts chapter 2 tells us that. But as time went on, the religious leaders started to see this new, growing, thriving community uh, that they called of the way, or as we know as Christians, the Jewish community became threatened because they saw their way of life becoming challenged and diminishing in the wake of this growth of Christians there in Jerusalem. And so they began a, uh, a wave of persecution against these Christians. And this wave of persecution, according to some of the historians like Josephus, included um, removing them from any office of position of authority within the Jewish culture. Uh, it included the confiscation of their wealth. Uh, they're, they're simply uh, taking their wealth and material goods away from them, leaving them with nothing. And then eventually they were imprisoned for their Christian faith. And so many of them decided to leave Jerusalem and scatter into the regions around Israel, which are called Asia Minor, and they began to live amongst the people, the Gentile people there in those regions. And then another wave of persecution came, this time at the hands of the Romans, because these Jewish Christians in these regions around Jerusalem, thinking that they were going to find some kind of uh, safety or a shelter from the persecution of Judaism, they then found themselves under a second wave of persecution due to the fact that the Roman Empire required that Caesar be worshipped as a deity. In fact, we know that Nero created coins that on the back of these coins stated the Son of God. And so Caesar required worship. There were temples made in these various cities in which the Jewish people were then required to come to and to worship and to give tribute or offering onto these 
uh, onto Caesar uh, and as a statement of worship and subjection to him, not only as the Caesar, the Roman official over them and in governance, but also recognizing and um, identifying him as a deity before them. Well, that wasn't going to take place. And so as they resisted, they found themselves then uh, expelled from those cities and they became nomen, uh, nomads traveling by themselves. They were out in tents. They had nothing to their name. They were not only physically but emotionally persecuted for their Christian faith. And many of them were starting to consider what's the point? Why go any further? It was so much easier when we were simply Jews and we were able to retain the comforts of this world and the benefits of Judaism and the shelter that Judaism brought us under the Roman uh, umbrella because after the oppression, I should say, the occupation of Jerusalem and Israel, Rome would then recognize their religion. And as a result of recognizing it, anyone who practiced that religion would be okay to do so because it was state-sanctified, it was state-recognized, and the Romans recognized Judaism, but they had this problem with Christianity. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter to them to encourage them to keep going. And mainly to keep going by having faith in God and the ultimate plans and purposes of God and how they will be fulfilled. But to do so, to drive the point home, the writer of the book of Hebrews needed to give them examples, illustrations that they could grasp and hold on to and that they could identify with. And so that's why we find this list from the Old Testament in chapter 11 given to us And as a result, there is much that we can learn from each and every account. But when we get to the point of verse 20 and the identifying of Isaac, we are somewhat surprised to discover the reason in which he has been inducted into the hall of faith. Now, many Jewish scholars brought forth the argument stating that, wow, if Isaac was going to be remembered for anything, I think they thought that he should be remembered for the fact that he was willing to lay himself on the sacrifice or on the altar in which his dad Abraham created there on Mount Moriah and was allowing himself willingly to be sacrificed unto God. If that wasn't an act of faith, I don't know what was. And that's, that's certainly reasonable to consider. But that's not the reason that Isaac is remembered. For Isaac is remembered, for by faith Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. Now, when you come to a verse like that, if you're reading that in your own personal devotional time, and you say, well, I don't really know what that verse means. And even in this particular case, you can look at the definitions of the words and you still are left with some ambiguity. You're like, I'm not really certain I've got this nailed down and what the writer is actually meaning when he states such a thing. And again, I think this is evidence that the writer of Hebrew was writing to people in which he anticipated that they would understand the backstories to these examples. It would be so ingrained in their mind and in their heart that 
he could write such a statement and know for certainty that his readers could identify with it and understand exactly what he meant by it. But since we all didn't grow up, or I don't think any of us grew up in a Jewish home, being uh, instructed in the scriptures from the time of our birth till the time of our uh, bar mitzvah at 13, and therefore being able to comment on the scriptures ourselves at that time, we need to go back into Genesis and to find out what this actually means. And when we discover what it actually means, which I believe makes itself abundantly clear if we look at the background story itself, we're going to be amazed because it is going to deal with a subject that all of us as Christians need to understand and embrace if we are truly truly going to appreciate who God is and his relationship over society, culture, creation, and even us. We are going to discover that what Isaac had faith in, I'm going to give it to you up front, that way you can look for it as we travel through the Old Testament together, was the knowledge of the sovereignty of God. Isaac had confidence that God's plan was perfectly going to fulfill itself regardless of any kind of human uh, deterrent from sin to rebellion, from an individual simply not desiring to go the the way God wanted to go. Ultimately, God's plans are going to be perfectly fulfilled just as God orchestrated them to be fulfilled. Now, when it comes to the subject of the sovereignty of God, it's a subject that many retract from in our biblical community today. And part of the reason that we retract from this conversation is because it unfortunately has become a subject that is very divisive. People have begun to divide over the the issue of the sovereignty of God, which I find inconsistent with the manner in which the Jewish people held the idea of the sovereignty of God. Much of what we are taught today concerning the sovereignty of God in churches is based upon the understanding of sovereignty that the reformers held to in the 1400s, 1500s, and 1600s. I have always argued that their understanding of sovereignty is different than the understanding of sovereignty that the Jewish mind held to when considering the sovereignty of God. And as a result, I sometimes think we don't go back far enough because I truly believe that the Jewish understanding of sovereignty is superior to that of the reformers. When the reformers were confronted with the the idea of sovereignty, you have to place yourself in that culture. The reformers were from European countries, and European countries were all governed by who at that time? A kings, exactly. And those kings believed that they were from uh, what's called Medodiluvian lines, which means that they all believed that they were from God himself, that God had appointed them to this position of royalty, their lineage, their line, and so forth. And they were the ones exercising a sovereignty over the people in which the reformers used as kind of their basis for understanding sovereignty when it comes to the sovereignty of God. Now, there is aspects that are 
parallel in that particular example to the sovereignty of God, but I think the sovereignty of God described in the Bible is so much more majestic than the sovereignty that one human being can reign over another. And when we embrace the sovereignty of God that the Jewish people, the Jewish mindset embraced, I believe then we can react like Paul did and others who spoke on the sovereignty of God in great rejoicing and say, oh, thank God for the sovereignty of God and so forth. And again, when we allow it to have its full uh, revelation revealed, which we can't get to all of this morning because of our time limitations, But as I bring that to your attention, I would encourage you that as you read the Bible and you hear things about sovereignty, look at them through the lens of the scriptures, look at them through Judaism and how the Jews looked at them, notice how the people reacted to sovereignty and they rejoiced within it, and then do me one more favor, if you will. Don't allow sovereignty to only be connected with the election of the individual to the place and position of of, uh, salvation. The sovereignty is so much superior than simply in the doctrine of election. Allow it to be what it is biblically, and I think you will be blessed by doing so. So if we're going to look at the backstory together this morning, we must start in Genesis chapter 25, if you'll turn there with me. Now, many of you obviously remember the story of Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah had come to a place similarly to that of Abraham and Sarah, where they were found unable or incapable, I should say, of having children for themselves. But then God intervened in Genesis 25, 19 through 28. And he intervened and blessed them with a child, even though she was barren, because they had cried out to the Lord. And he granted their prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 22 of chapter 25. Then, as she was carrying the two, the children, she was carrying twins, uh, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? She, and the Hebrew is re, uh, reflecting, she's like, oh Lord, why does it have to be like this? You know, Lord, you know, I, I've waited all this time to have a child and now I've got two and it feels like World War Three is taking place within my womb. Lord, what is happening to me or why are you allowing this to happen to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, well, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. I don't know if that's what you really want to tell a pregnant woman in her third trimester of her carrying a, uh, by the way, they're not two children, those are two nations. What? What? And two peoples from within you shall be divided. She was carrying twins, and God's saying that from these two, two groups of nations are going to develop. Of course, Jacob developed through his 12 sons into the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau, which is one of the children that will be born, the firstborn, he became the Edomites in the Old Testament society, and God's word was perfectly fulfilled. 
But God saw these two wrestling within her, two nations that would be born. And then he states this to them. The older shall serve the younger. Now, of course, the firstborn was always given the privileged blessing. It was undoubtedly culturalistic for the firstborn to carry on the promise in which God had made to Abraham. But it wasn't through his firstborn, Abraham's firstborn, that the promise carried. It was through his second, Isaac. God didn't recognize Ishmael. And just like Isaac brought about the Jewish people, Ishmael brought about all the nations today that if we were to look at a map of the Middle East, all the nations that are now Islamically controlled all derived from Ishmael. Do you know God told them back then that this was going to be a problem? That this act of disobedience, that this one act of impatience uh, brought about this constant conflict between the Jews and the Islamic nations around them, even to this day, God said that that would happen. But here he states to her, the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red and all of his body was like a hairy cloak. Oh, that's an introduction. You know, does she put that on Facebook and everybody say, oh, how cute, you know? Really? So they called his name Esau, which means hairy, red hairy one. That's something to carry with you. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. It means heel catcher, stumbler. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Ah, the dilemma of twins. Mommy's favorite, daddy's favorite. But God said, the younger shall serve the older, but dad liked the older better than the younger. The older was an outdoorsman. He was willing to go out and get his hands dirty. He liked hunting and fishing and everything that went along with it. He belonged to the NRA and so forth. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Jacob was a quiet boy, a sensitive soul. Came home and cooked with mom in the kitchen because all the other kids didn't allow him to play with them. And as a result, when it came time to give the blessing, because of the favoritism of Isaac for Esau over Jacob... The elder would wait until almost his deathbed to pronounce the blessing upon the birthright upon the son in whom would carry on the lineage of the family and the responsibilities thereof, and also inherit all of the wealth that came from the father to the firstborn son. Isaac wanted to bless Esau with everything that he had. Now, the text tells us, if you read there, that Esau didn't really care about his birthright. In fact, in a moment of hunger, when Jacob had some stew that was appealing to Esau, Esau simply traded away his entire birthright for the stew in which he was about to eat. He didn't really care about what his father had to offer him. Even though it was so precious to his father to give to him, 
He personally didn't even really care about it. But Isaac was set on blessing Esau. He was set on that fact. And so as time went on, and the, he became more elderly and his eyesight was failing, he finally made the decision in Genesis 27, 1 through 4, if you go there, to take this moment and to bless his son Esau with the birthright, even though God had other plans. And it says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I am old and I do not know the days of my death. Now then, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me a delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that, may, that my soul may bless you before I die. So he feels like he's coming to the end of his life. Sends his eldest out to go and hunt and to discover and to find the game in which Isaac liked to have. And in this last meal, at the end of it, he was going to play, uh, bless Esau with the blessing of the firstborn. However, though, something happened. For Rebecca and Jacob were in the other room. They heard what was transpiring. And Rebecca knew that, no, uh-uh, I, I don't want Esau to have it. I want Jacob to have it. And so now is our moment of opportunity. So she went and got some game, prepared it, and then prepared uh, Jacob to resemble Esau before Isaac, whose eyes were very dim. And to do so, here's what they did. Isaac uh, couldn't see very well, so they just had to accommodate his other senses. And so what they did is that she took the skins of goats and put it on Jacob's arms so he would be as hairy as Esau. Oh, that's nice to know. And so they did this, and Jacob came in with a bowl of stew, just as his father had requested of Esau. And Jacob, I should say Esau, Isaac, reached out and grabbed the arms of Jacob covered in these uh, skins of goats and saw that they were hairy and assumed that this was Esau, his older brother. And for the stew, he then went and uh, blessed him with the blessing. By deception, Jacob took what God had already given him. Even though Isaac set his heart on giving Esau the birthright and the blessing, God's plans were perfectly fulfilled. Not that God condoned the uh, uh, deception, not that God orchestrated the deception, but God allowed it to play out, and in, in so doing, God's perfect plan was executed, and Jacob, the younger, received the blessing that the older should receive, and therefore the older will now serve the younger, just as God said he would. Genesis 27, verse 22, we pick it up there. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, you are really, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Jacob lied. 
And then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and ate, and he ate, excuse me, and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the plenty of the grain and the wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you and curse be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And so it has happened. And when Esau comes back in, he's furious and asks for a blessing from his father, which he then could not give. It was a simpler one, but it was a blessing that subjected him to his younger brother, Jacob. But when Isaac, this is the key to our study this morning in verse 33 of chapter 27. When Isaac had therefore realized what had happened, And ultimately, God had had his way. It says then in verse 33, Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came. I have blessed him. Yes, he shall be blessed. And what it says there is this. He trembled in the wake of the realization of what had happened. Fully knowing that God had spoken to Rebecca so many years earlier about the younger serving the older. And now we come to the point where this has actually occurred and Isaac being tricked and duped by his younger son Jacob gives him the blessing and now instead of revoking it, he allows it to continue. What he is saying here is this. Yes, and he shall be blessed. What we are seeing here in this violent trembling and in the statement in which Isaac is making, he is saying, though I had my way in it all, and though I had my idea on how it was going to play out, and though I wanted Esau to have the blessing, God has demonstrated that he is sovereign over all things. God has demonstrated that he is superior to 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 me in every way, shape, or form, and I am going to let it stand just as God would have it to stand. By faith, Isaac submitted to God the title of our message today. And specifically, by faith, Isaac submitted to the sovereignty of God over his life. Today, we wrestle with the notion of who knows best for my personal life? Do I know best? And therefore, do I have the capability to map out my life accordingly and to bring me to where I want to be and therefore allow that to satisfy me in my personal life and in my personal endeavors? Or, as a believer in Jesus Christ, is it possible that God knows me better than I know myself and therefore, in the light of that, I should allow Him to govern my future And bring to pass those things that fall within the plan and purpose that God has for me. You have to wrestle with this idea. 
To allow you to begin to wrestle with this idea, you first must understand the sovereignty of God. And once you do, I believe that the sovereignty of God becomes a, uh, a position of confidence and gratefulness, allowing you by faith to submit to him and say, as Jesus did in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, not my will be done, but your will be done. You see, when Isaac stated this and this blessing that he gave to Jacob, even though he thought he was blessing his older son Esau, he also knew that not only has God had his way, but God was going to bring all of these things to fruition, which is exactly what God did. Through Jacob and his 12 sons came the foundations of the nation of Israel. From the nation of Israel came our Messiah. And therefore, God fulfilled his plans perfectly in the wake of the individual's own personal free will. When we talk about the sovereignty of God in reform circles, we often find ourselves to the place of having to negate one over the other to allow the other to exist. Let me say that again. We often have to negate the one over the other to allow the other to exist. And so the arguments become, well, if God is sovereign, then man must not have free will. And then the other argument goes from the other side, well, if we have, man has free will, then God must not be sovereign. I tell you this morning that those are faulty arguments. Because throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God always allows man to exercise his free will. And guess what? Each and every time he does, he perfectly fulfills the will of God and the sovereign plan that God has for all of us. Again, showing God's sovereignty more superiorly than uh, if it were simply to overlapse you know, over, um, and to negate the free will of man or the free will of man somehow overlapping and negating the sovereignty of God. We see this harmony working between the two and ultimately God's will always gets done perfectly. And so my understanding of the sovereignty of God is that I believe the same understanding that Isaac embraced that allowed his faith to let things play out as God would have them to play out. When I say the sovereignty of God, what am I talking about? How do I define it? Simply as the authority over everything. God has authority over everything. Every aspect of creation, every aspect of the heavenly realm, Every aspect of darkness, demons, and Satan, God has superiority over it all. And as a result, God reigns then. And nothing can take him from that place of prominence. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. And I believe it was one named Job who said that. Nothing can do that. And so God is in control of all things. And even though from our limited perspective, through the microcosm of the lens in which we are looking at, things look to be crazy and out of hand and chaotic and just nuts. But from God's point of view, it's all playing out exactly the way he said it would and will end up in the place in which he states it will. And I don't have to worry about that. I can allow that to comfort my hearts in times of chaos. And do I think it's chaotic in the world in which we live? You bet. Do I think that right now 
I understand so little about the human psyche today that uh, I feel embarrassed to say that. I do. I don't understand why people think the way they do today. I don't get it. I don't get the rationale, the, the, the line of logic. I don't understand it at all. But God does. And then he reminds me, are we simply reaping that which we have sown? He speaks to my heart and says, they wanted me out of every aspect of the nation and now I'm out of every aspect of the nation and now you get what you wanted. And now you don't like it. You should have kept me there. But Isaac came to the point and said, you know what, God, you're in control. And whatever happens going forward, you're in control of it all and all of it's going to perfectly play out exactly the way you say it is. As one wrote, he says, God's sovereignty is marked by several characteristics, including the following. Number one, God's sovereignty is all-inclusive. Even the powers of darkness and the devil come under the rule of his sovereignty. God never endorses evil, but sometimes permits evil to exist and happen to allow his holy displeasure in order to fulfill his sovereign purposes. God hates and detests evil and humanity, I'm sorry, evil and human sin, but permits them in order to accomplish his purpose. In other words, God overrules evil in order to bring good from it. There's no better example of that than the cross, right? We saw human uh, evil at its highest in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God allowed it to occur. God the Father allowed it to occur. They thinking that they were suppressing this divisive one that came into their society and ridding themselves of a false prophet when in actuality, through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the atonement of the sins of the world was taking place. That's the sovereignty of God. And often we don't recognize it from our vantage point. They didn't see that Jesus was atoning for the sins of the world there on the cross. Even in the midst of the three hours of darkness, they simply saw, this is it. He's done. We can mock him. He's over. He's finished. This false prophet is out of our hair. But God's plan was perfectly being fulfilled in the free will exercised by the men around Jesus Christ. Amazing. Number two, God's sovereignty doesn't contradict the free choice of his creation including human beings, angels, and demons. Rather, God's sovereignty establishes his creatures' exercise of their free will. For example, the Bible affirms that Judas Iscariot betrayed, betrayal of Jesus was permissively planned by God before the creation of the universe. Acts 2.23, right? But the Bible also confirms that Judas Iscariot freely decided to betray the Lord. He was never coerced or forced to do so. There's the two playing out again. God's sovereign plan. Again, Judas thought he was politically advancing his position, trying to gain the favoritism of the religious leaders at that time, freely betrays Jesus Christ to them, when in actuality, working behind the scenes, this was the vehicle in which God would use to bring Jesus into arrest and, of course, eventually lead to the crucifixion. Number three, God's sovereignty also establishes the moral and spiritual responsibility of all humans. Humans aren't mere puppets or robots, but responsible and relational beings with intellect, emotion, and personal will. Humans are obligated to respond to God's sovereign initiatives through their own choices, decisions, and actions. And that, I believe, displays for us 
a more Jewish concept of the sovereignty of God compared to those of the reformers and allows us to then really rest in the sovereignty of God and saying, Lord, even if I make a mistake, your plans are going to be perfect. I don't want to make a mistake, but even if I screw up, your plans are going to be perfectly fulfilled. And it's this relationship between the beginning and the end, and you see it throughout all of the Bible. And it's a blessing to see. But as an individual, I believe that we can walk in the sovereignty of God and allow a personal application to take place of the acknowledgement of it within our own personal lives. And this is where kind of the rubber hits the road when it comes to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Number one, we can learn how to acknowledge God's lordship over life and our personal destiny. This therefore brings us into the challenge, the mental challenge, the intellectual challenge of who knows what's best for my life. And if we will be honest, we would have to say God because God is God and I am not. Now that best doesn't mean that it's going to be materially blessed and everything is going to be perfect and so on. It may be something that we would never consider, but God is looking at our life here as a stepping stone to a life there in eternity where we then can glorify God by the life in which we've lived here. So God's taking into consideration what is the best for you for all eternity, where we often looked at it and say, what's the best for us here and now? Big difference. And you're going to make decisions uh, completely differently based on that perspective. As he went on to write, he says, to truly acknowledge God's sovereignty, we will make every effort to love God with all of our minds, hearts, wills, and souls, and to love our neighbor as ourselves in spite of the cost required for such obedience. The sovereignty of God allows me to understand that what God is doing is so much bigger than anything that I'm experiencing right here and now. And therefore, to be part of that, I am willing to forgo some of the temporal pleasures to allow a position or an attitude of self-sacrifice and love here on this earth. Number two. We can learn to be grateful to the Lord when confronted with all kinds of adversaries, adversities, excuse me, and trials. When we go through difficulties as Christians, we have the blessed promise that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, what does that word good mean? Well, Paul defines it for us in the next verse, verse 29, when he says, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So when I experience adversity or trial, trouble or tribulation, first and foremost, I must understand that God has allowed such circumstances into my life from his position of his sovereignty to bring about these changes to conform me into a more perfect image of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I should be grateful and rejoice, meaning that these things mean something. They're not simply here to hurt me. They're not simply mean here to hinder me. God is using them in my life to bring about the changes in which he would want and desire to bring about. And when we truly acknowledge God's all-inclusive sovereignty, it shows that we have no doubt about God's love and favor for us, even in unfavorable circumstances. 
And number three, when we allow the sovereignty of God to reign, we possess confidence that God's sovereign sovereignty provides us with comfort when we face, again, difficulties and trial. The comfort is that peace that surpasses all understanding. That I know that it's not only working in me for a greater good, but it's working in God's overall meta-narrative that he orchestrated from the foundations of the world. I don't fully understand it all from my vantage point, I may say, but God does. And so what I may be experiencing at this moment, I can be confident that God is using it in some way. It is not random and it is certainly not meaningless. And therefore, I can gain great comfort in those moments. Specifically, when I choose to follow Christ by denying myself, taking up the cross and following after him, or when I decide to walk on the narrow path rather than the broad path, I can be assured that I am going to provoke the reaction of persecution and that of hatred from the world around me when I choose to do so. And in the light of that persecution, again, those individuals, remember those Jewish individuals who now were nomads in the wilderness, living apart from all that they ever had, were wondering, what's the point? Why shouldn't I just go back to Judaism? The writer here is telling us, because what you are going through now is leading you to something so far, so superior to that which you once left behind. And I can have comfort in that. But let us understand that this gratefulness, this comfort, and allowing the meta-narrative to play itself out and is submitting to its authority in the sovereignty of God, displayed in the sovereignty of God, all of this comes through faith. I have to trust Him. I have to trust Him. And Isaac said that even though I had my will and even though I tried to fulfill it, And even though I was deceived and these things came about the way they did, ultimately God's plan was perfectly fulfilled. He didn't contone these things, but he allowed these things to play out and they played perfectly into the hands of the individuals just as he stated it would. The sovereignty of God, I think, is one of the most refreshing, comforting aspects of the Christian faith. And when it becomes a subject of divisiveness, when it comes a subject that is simply uh, defined by the understanding of those in the 14, 15, and 1600s, we lose the majesty of it all. For me to fully understand the sovereignty of God, I must state this, I don't understand the sovereignty of God. If my finite mind can grasp the infinite sovereignty of God, then it is not infinite at all. It is finite in capability and and capacity. But I see it. And God has given me enough uh, uh, information and illustrations concerning it from Genesis to Revelation, and therefore I can submit to it. I can be grateful for it. I can be comforted by it. I don't fully understand it. But then again, one of the first truths that I have embraced as a Christian and that I believe is absolute and is immovable is this, that he is God and I am not. But he's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God, a merciful God. 
And so Isaac saw this and knew this. And as he violently shook before the realization of that truth, he said, let the blessings stand as they stand. For God is sovereign over all. And by faith, Isaac submitted to God. Father, we thank you.